Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hey everyone, this is Ann Eglash, and today I'm going to talk about some of the most important articles that have been in the literature in the last year, in 2017. The other thing about today's podcast is that the Milk Mob is starting a new format for these podcasts. So this will be the inaugural one where we're going to have this one on YouTube. So if you want to see the visuals of the slides that I'm presenting as I give this podcast, please check us out on the Milk Mob channel. This is entitled, What's New in Breastfeeding? A 2017 Review. The objectives of what I'm going to talk about today are to include the policy statements from professional organizations, expert opinion recommendations, and also talk about some new concepts in breastfeeding medicine. So first, I'm going to ask you some questions and have you decide if they're true or false. So first, I'm going to talk about the CDC guidelines that came out last year on how to keep your breast pump kit clean. And my first question to you is, True or false, breast pump parts should be sterilized once a day. And that's false. And the second one, if the pump tubing has milk in it, throw the tubing away and obtain new tubing. True or false? True. Those are two recommendations based on the CDC guidelines. So the CDC guidelines at Uh, recommend that at first women take their pump parts and put them into a clean basin and not to put their parts directly into the sink. They should use soap and water in the basin and scrub all the different parts using a scrub brush that's clean and then air dry everything on paper towel and not on a dish towel that's used because used dish towels tend to be dirty. Then afterwards clean the basin and clean the bottle brush. The other option, instead of cleaning it that way, would be to put it into a dishwasher using like a separate little basket or mesh laundry bag so the parts don't become um, damaged um, or thrown around in the dishwasher. Then the other thing is that the CDC is recommending a sanitization cycle. And you can use the, women can use the dishwasher on the sanitize cycle uh, to fulfill this recommendation. but the other suggestions that they have for sanitizing are to either boil everything for five minutes and take things out with a tong, um, steam using the microwave bags that you can purchase in stores, um, or actually bleach everything. And the way to bleach things is to take 16 cups of water, add one teaspoon of bleach, and then submerge everything for two minutes. <clears throat> and they recommend not rinsing these parts after submerging in the uh, bleach, they say that the bleach will break down as it dries and it's safe for the babies to come into contact with. And then after they're bleached, put them on a clean paper towel or an unused dish towel. The CDC recommends the sanitizing for um, infants who are under three months. All right. The next article I want to mention to you that came out last year was a uh, recommendation from the American Academy of Pediatrics, and this is a policy statement 
that's entitled Donor Human Milk for the High-Risk Infant Preparation, Safety, and Usage Options in the United States. And this was published in Pediatrics in January of 2017. So here's some true and false questions for you according to this guideline. The American Academy of Pediatrics policy recommends banked donor human milk for infants weighing less than 1,500 grams, not based on gestational age or illness. True or false? That's true. The American Academy statement indicates the importance of pooling donor milk, which means more than one donor represented in a bottle of donor milk. True or false? And that's actually true, although it's somewhat indirectly indicated. We'll talk a little bit about that. And the use of bank donor human milk has been shown to cause a decrease in mother's provision of her own breast milk. True or false? And that's false. So um, just to summarize their policy, number one, they say that mother's own milk is preferred, of course, and that banked donor human milk may be used, quote unquote, for high-risk infants when mother's milk is not available. The Human Milk Banking Association of North America processes, processes are safe, and that's quite important. So all of the nonprofit milk banks in the United States fall under the umbrella of the Human Milk Banking Association of North America, and I know that around the country, some neonatologists in NICUs have been concerned about the safety of donor milk. And this is great that the American Academy of Pediatrics states that the processes are safe. And in addition, the FDA has stated the same thing. There have been no reported cases of bank donor human milk causing hepatitis or HIV. And so the risk is extremely small. They also state that bank donor human milk should be pasteurized and post-pasteurization testing should be performed, which I'm sure all donor, donor milk banks do to make sure that, that the um, bottles have no bacteria in them after pasteurization. In addition, they state that despite loss of bioactive factors with pasteurization, clinical outcomes support the use of bank donor human milk. And that concerns regarding growth should not discourage the use of bank donor human milk. Fortification should be used. And that's important too, because I've heard that this is another reason why some neonatologists choose to use formula rather than bank donor human milk when there's not enough of mother's own milk because of this growth issue. But if fortification is done appropriately, growth should be fine. And that humans should be discouraged from direct human milk sharing or purchasing human milk from the internet because of the risks of infection, contamination, medications, drugs, etc. The American Academy of Pediatrics also states that the use of donor human milk should not be limited by an individual's ability to pay. Um, and uh, there are no clear guidelines on when to stop using donor milk for an infant, such as gestational age. Uh, mothers should be encouraged and supported to provide their own milk. And I think this is an important factor that when NICUs are purchasing milk, that they consider putting some money into education for their NICU staff to make sure that they're, that they're optimally supporting mothers when they're expressing milk or when they're beginning, when they're initiating breastfeeding uh, their preterm infants. The AAP also states that there's little data 
on the benefits of donor milk for other populations, such as gastroschisis or congenital heart disease, and they acknowledge that, they're pro that these are probably populations that may benefit from being donor human milk. In addition, they recommend that the healthcare providers should advocate for insurance coverage for donor milk, and that families of high-risk infants should be informed about the current state of research regarding the benefits of human milk to decrease the risks of complications from neck. So that's important too, like families should be informed um, that, that donor human milk is an option, particularly in NICUs where they don't provide donor human milk. It's important for families to know that there is an option to prevent neck. And that um, healthcare providers should advocate for policies regarding the risks and benefits of direct or informal milk sharing without pasteurization. And in this particular podcast, I'm not going to talk about the American, the um, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's informal milk sharing policy, but I encourage you to check that out, which is at the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's website in their protocols, bfmed.org because I think this is an important um, statement from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. All right, I'm gonna move on to another topic, which is on fish and DHA and the infant brain. And DHA is docosahexaenoic acid. I want you to discuss two articles on this topic that were published last year. One was a recommendation by the Food and Drug Administration of the United States, and the other was an article that was published by Bert Kletzko, a human milk researcher in the clinics of perinatology in issue 44, 2017. So some true and false for you. Fetal exposure to fish increases the risk of fish allergy, so DHA supplements are preferred over fish when women are pregnant. True or false? And that's false. Premature infants exposed to high amounts of DHA have improved visual function by the corrected age of four months. True or false? True. We know that breastfeeding meets the DHA needs of term infants, but not for preterm infants. So for very low birth weight infants, they need higher amounts of DHA supplementation. And if they receive that, it's associated with enhanced visual and cognitive development, reduced severe developmental delay, which means that we see less mental retardation, reduced bronchopulmonary dysplasia, reduced necrotizing enterocolitis, and actually these infants end up having fewer environmental allergies such as hay fever symptoms. So according to Dr. Klutzko, mothers with very low birth weight infants need to take DHA supplements. And the studies show that these mothers can reach sufficient DHA if they take three grams of tuna oil a day. Um, so the other thing is that fish is an important source of protein for pregnant and nursing mothers. So as we now we're going to talk about uh, term infants, healthy term infants, um, and that moderate fish consumption during pregnancy is associated with a child's early verbal development and IQ. So if a mother, if a pregnant mother eats about eight to twelve ounces of fish a week, her child may gain three point three extra IQ points by age nine. But once the mother gets over 12 ounces a week, it's not necessarily shown to be beneficial, and then she has a higher risk of mercury exposure. So the FDA actually states that eating less than three ounces of fish a week is harmful to the fetus. 
and that canned light tuna is the least expensive and safest way to consume the recommended amount of fish each week. So if you go to the uh, FDA's website and just search FDA, um, let's see, it's actually fda.gov forward slash fish advice, you'll see this really nice chart that you can show to families that you work with about how much fish uh, they need to eat. And actually, one serving of fish is the size of one's palm of the hand. Um, adults have a larger palm. And so the palm, the size of the palm is about the size of four ounces of fish. And for a child's palm between the ages of four and seven, that's two ounces of fish. So using the palm as a size is a good measure. And it also talks about best choices of fish, good choices and choices to avoid because of the risk of mercury exposure. So that's a great resource to have on hand. The next uh, topic I want to talk about um, is the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's policy statement that came out last year on breastfeeding an infant or a young child with insulin-dependent diabetes. And again, you can see these protocols for free at bfmed.org forward slash protocols. So true or false, diabetic infants or toddlers should be on a strict nursing schedule to control their diabetes. That's false. And pre and post feed weights are needed after each feeding at the breast to calculate carb intake false. So what does the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine recommend about breastfeeding an infant or child with insulin-dependent diabetes? First of all, the um, we know that when a child or even an adult is using insulin that the insulin dosing depends on carb intake. But with infants and young children that can be quite variable. So they recommend that we can assume that 100 milliliters a little more than three ounces of breast milk is considered seven grams of carbs. And th these carbs mainly come from lactose. So one option is to do a pre and post feed weight to see how much a child typically takes in order to get a carb count. But that would, the, the reason to do that would be to sort of guesstimate in frequent, in uh, future meals, how much that child's usually taking. The other option um, is to determine the volume of breast milk that is generally made per day and figure that there's about 70 grams of carbs in a liter of breast milk. So if a mother is taking, let's say the mother's making 500 milliliters of milk a day, so half of a liter, and she nurses five times a day, then she's giving the baby about 100 milliliters per feeding, and that could be an easy way of calculating uh, carbs. Now, all of you who are listening know that toddlers with diabetes, or any toddler who's nursing, um, may be taking really small amounts of breast milk very frequently. They'll constantly perhaps be coming up to mom and nursing for a very short times and then leaving. And then it's pretty hard to know how much they're taking. So in those situations, it would be recommended to base the insulin on the blood sugar test every three hours. And they also recommend that insulin pump use for infants and young children will help to keep the sugars balanced as well. So in other words, this is great fodder for 
um, families who are working with endocrinologists uh, in situations where their children are recently diagnosed with diabetes um, and are hoping to advocate for themselves so that they can continue to nurse their infants and toddlers as they have been. The next topic that I wanted to talk about from last year is the European Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition Committee, um, which is their complementary feeding position paper. So this was published in JPGN in 2017, um, uh, issue 64, page 119 to 132. So this is a European group that is making uh, several recommendations about complementary feeding. So true or false, introducing gluten during breastfeeding reduces an infant's risk of celiac sprue. That's false. And infants have a lower risk of allergy to nuts, shellfish, and eggs if these foods are introduced closer to 12 months of age. True or false? And that's false. So first, the committee sort of talks about the timing of introduction of complementary foods, and they have a whole set of observations of what research is telling us. So first they say that if, uh, if a mother waits until feeding, waits until six months to feed complementary foods to her infant, there's no evidence that there's deficits on growth or the effect of allergies. Women who introduce solids before six months have earlier return of menses, especially in low-income settings, and that even in high-income countries, there's a risk of increased GI infections uh, when complementary foods are introduced before six months, although this seems to be related to formula introduction more so than solids. There is an increased risk of upper respiratory infections, but not lower respiratory infections with complementary feedings before six months. And in general, the evidence about proper timing of complementary feeding is lacking. So they also mentioned that different countries have adopted different recommendations based on some pretty sparse data. And they give an example of Sweden and Norway, both of which generally recommend quote unquote, small tastes at four to six months and then start complementary feeding sort of more robustly at six months. The other observations that the paper mentions is that renal and gut maturation is sufficient by four months to handle solid foods and that most children have the ability neurologically to swallow pureed safely at four to six months. They state that complementary feeding with iron-rich foods at four months may improve iron status, and that there's mixed data as to whether introducing complementary feeding at four months versus six months increases the risk of obesity. There's also no evidence that there's a negative neurocognitive outcome if complementary foods are offered at four months versus six months. So. In terms of allergy, they recommend that complementary foods should not be introduced before four months and not delayed past six months. For infants who are at a high risk of allergy, particularly those who have a family history of peanut allergy, or those who already have eczema or evidence of an egg allergy, they should be evaluated by a allergist before uh, peanut is introduced sometime between four and 11 months.
The group also recommends that gluten be introduced before between, I'm sorry, between four and 12 months, but to avoid large quantities at one time, um, because large quantities seem to increase the risk of development of celiac sprue, although there's no definition of what a large quantity is. And all infants should receive iron-rich complementary foods, including meat products and or iron-fortified foods when they do start complementary foods. In terms of the peanut allergy issue, um, they have found that countries that give peanuts as weaning foods have lower peanut allergies, and that there seems to be a critical window of when it's best to introduce allergens, somewhere between um, four to seven months. <clears throat> and this has been found in some studies where introducing egg between four and six months reduces the risk of egg allergy, and that peanut introduction between four and 11 months reduces the risk of allergy as compared to waiting until they're much older. In addition, early fish introduction, again, between that four to seven month mark, reduces um, the allergic sensitization and um, reduces the risk of allergic rhinitis. So in that sense, the committee then goes on to say that there's no need to delay the allergenic foods like peanut, fish, and egg past four months, although they don't really talk about the fact that we recommend in breastfeed, you know, in breastfeeding circles that we should be waiting until six months um, because of the other concerns regarding the risk of GI infection and colds and growth and maternal uh, return of menses, etc. Okay, and then celiac sprue. So um, they say that breastfeeding itself and breastfeeding at the time of gluten introduction are not associated with celiac disease or the incidence of type 1 diabetes. But it's difficult to sort of tease this all out because <clears throat> some of this may be confounded by cesarean births, the use of antibiotics, and stomach infections, which may have all of which may have an effect on the microbiome. So that's what the evidence is showing right now, but it doesn't seem definitive. The committee recommends introducing gluten at four to 11 months, and again, not large amounts. And they also mentioned that children who have celiac disease have more uh, bacteroides in their microbiome and less bifidobacteria and less lactobacillus. So it's hard to say how much of it's genetic versus a difference in the microbiome based on other factors, such as introduction of antibiotics or cesarean births. And there is no evidence that trying to change the microbiome of the child with giving probiotics is going to prevent or treat um, celiac disease. In this um, paper, they also make some recommendations about iron in complementary foods. So first they say to prevent early cord clamping, which I'm so happy they mentioned that. Um, and I'm glad that they're not calling this the optimal cord clamping delayed cord clamping because the delay is normal. So really what's abnormal is the early cord clamping. They also state that iron stores do reach a nadir, their lowest level at around six months. Although again, we don't know if that's based on early cord clamping. Um, they do recommend that solids when started should be high in iron and to strive for six to 11 milligrams of iron every day. So for those of you who have not seen the American Academy of Pediatric article on iron uh, supplementation, 
and iron in uh, breastfeeding infants, they have a really great table of all the different foods that tend to be introduced to infants and how much iron is in, is in these different foods. Um, they do say that meat is an early food and to consider using fortified cereals as well. Um, and that cow's milk introduced can cause iron deficiency. Um, there's no recommendation for routinely adding extra iron supplements for a healthy term infant who's breastfeeding and who's eating a diet with heme protein, meaning heme protein from meat. Okay. Um, another article that came out last year that I think is useful clinically is the um, supplementation feeding in the healthy term breastfed neonate, which was revised just this year. So this is a supplementation protocol by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine that I think is on its second or third revision. And again, this is available at bfmed.org forward slash protocols. True or false, infants who are at 10% weight loss need to be supplemented with formula, express breast milk, or donor milk. False. Asymptomatic infants born to a mother with gestational diabetes should receive supplemental feeding to prevent hypoglycemia. True or false? False. So the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine's recommendations in their supplementation protocol include, number one, early formula use is associated with decreased exclusive breastfeeding in the first six months and a shorter overall duration of breastfeeding. And that cholesterol feedings at the breast can prevent hypoglycemia in the baby born to a diabetic mom. Um, exclusive newborn weight loss is associated with significant maternal IV fluid. So to take that into account when you see a baby who's had like a really dramatic weight loss in the first two days. And that baby-friendly hospital routines have been shown to decrease the need for a supplementation. They recommend as indications for supplementation, first of all, asymptomatic hypoglycemia, not responsive to breastfeeding. So in those situations, glucose gel can be used instead of supplementation, and the infant also could be receiving IV glucose in order to prevent the use of formula, and then the infant can continue to breastfeed. Another indication for supplementation would be signs and symptoms of inadequate milk intake. So if the baby has excessive weight loss, with obvious signs of dehydration, meconium, stools at day five, or severe hyperbilirubinemia as a consequence of excessive weight loss. Um, another indication would be maternal low milk supply, and of course, a mother who is unable to breastfeed. They talk about recommendations on the methods of supplementation, and they say that there's not really one supplemental method that one supplemental method that's necessarily better than the other, and that bottles, cups, syringes, droppers, spoons, and finger feeding, as well as a tube at the breast, are all acceptable. If hygiene is, is suboptimal, such as in uh, disaster situations like a hurricane or an earthquake, a cup, a cup should be used because they're much easier to clean. And um, they also say that avoiding bottles might help the infant return to breastfeeding if the infant is not nursing. Um, and the options, the decision on what means of supplementation to choose should be based on the cost, the ease of use, the availability, how fast it works, stress by the family, how long it's going to be used, and uh, family preference.
so it really should be sort of a shared decision making between the lactation specialist and the family. The next topic I want to recommend that I want to review is uh, risks and benefits of swaddling healthy infants and integrative review. So this is a review of the literature that was published last year in the American Journal of Maternal and Child Nursing 2017 in the April issue. True or false, swaddling helps to calm a full-term infant who is receiving immunizations or a heel stick. That's false. And swaddling could increase the risk of sudden infant death syndrome due to the risk of overheating. True or false? True. So they have some recommendations on swaddling. So first of all, there's no clear evidence about the effect on infant psychological development. And that swaddling probably reduces pain during procedures in preterm infants, but not for term infants. Swaddling might improve an infant's acceptance of supine sleeping. So, and I think that's why a lot of families will swaddle because they know to put the babies down on their backs, but then the babies won't stay on their backs and swaddling seems to improve that. And that's what studies show as well. But also swaddling has a negative impact on short-term breastfeeding in, uh, outcomes. And this may have to do with the fact that the babies sleep longer so they don't wake up as much to nurse in the middle of the night. The other thing is that tight swaddling is associated with developmental dysplasia of the hips um, by limiting the baby's ability to be in that frog leg position. And in addition, possible there's a possible increased risk of respiratory infections in tightly swaddled infants. The American Academy of Pediatrics also mentions swaddling in their um, SIDS and other sleep-related infant death update from 2016. And the American Academy of Pediatrics states that there's no evidence to recommend swaddling as a strategy to reduce the risk of SIDS, and that there is a risk of SIDS if a swaddled infant rolls to the prone position. So, to the, so if a child is swaddled and the child rolls onto his stomach, he's at higher risk for SIDS. So swaddling, if it's gonna be done, should occur around the chest, leaving ample room for around the hips and knees to avoid hip dysplasia, and that once a child shows attempts to roll to stop swaddling. And there's no evidence regarding SIDS risk if arms are in or out of the swaddle. So if arms are taken out, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have a lower risk of sudden infant death. The American Academy of Pediatrics also has some just general clinical implications of this um, or guidelines. One is that um, swaddling may be used as a means to calm and soothe infants and promote sleep, and that hyperthermia should be avoided through securely swaddling with a single blanket of low tog value, so not like a super stretchy tight fabric, and to avoid um, swaddling infants who have a fever because they might become hyperthermic, and always putting them on their backs. Um, they also recommend that swaddling may be used between periods of skin-to-skin -skin care when an infant is placed for safety on their own sleep surface to help maintain infant thermal regulation and comfort, and that it should always be hip healthy, as I mentioned, and that swaddled infants who are breastfeeding may need to be woken up at appropriate intervals if they're not waking up on their own, because again, swaddling may lead them to stay asleep longer. And again, the swaddling should be discontinued when the infant shows signs of rolling over.
Okay, so I'm going to then talk about another uh, systematic review that was published in the Journal of the American Di uh, uh, Dentist Association in August of 2017, and this is about malocclusions and breastfeeding. True or false, infants who breastfeed past 12 months have a lower risk that the upper and lower canine teeth and first molars won't line up. True. Lack of breastfeeding increases the risk of an anterior overbite, which is when the front teeth overlap the bottom teeth. True or false? True. So this meta-analysis that was published last year was based on seven studies. And in summary, it states that expectant families can be counseled that infants who breastfeed as recommended do not share the same degree of risk of developing, of developing malocclusions as those who breastfeed suboptimally. So the longer that a, breast, that a child breastfeeds, the um, greater outcomes there are, improved outcomes in terms of um, dental malocclusions. And that lack of exclusive breastfeeding is associated with a posterior crossbite, and that's when the top back teeth bite down inside the bottom back teeth. And in addition, this is interesting, sucking on a pacifier or digit can cause more malocclusions than not breastfeeding. So probably sucking on a pacifier or digit and bottle feeding are probably the worst combination. Another topic is uh, breastfeeding during pregnancy, a systematic review, and this was published in Women Birth 2017 in June. So we're going to do some true and false. Breastfeeding during pregnancy does not increase the risk of low birth weight for the newborn. False. Pregnant mothers who are breastfeeding are at risk nutritionally as measured by their body fat, weight gain, and hemoglobin. True or false? True. So this um, review was, a, was um, of seven studies, and they said that there's a paucity of studies in the United States, just not a lot of research about breastfeeding during pregnancy in the United States. Um, first of all, they state that there's no association of premature births with breastfeeding during pregnancy, but there is a higher risk of low birth weight if the mother is breastfeeding while she's pregnant, although there's not any studies that actually control for maternal diet. Um, there's no clear effect of tandem nursing on newborn growth postpartum. So when mom is nursing both the newborn and a toddler, there's no evidence that there's difficulty with the newborn growth. There's no studies done on the growth of the breastfeeding child during pregnancy. So if a if a infant is continuing to nurse during mom's pregnancy, and let's say the infant's under a year, so is really pretty dependent on breast milk, there's no evidence on growth. <clears throat> Um, a large number of children are weaned during pregnancy rates, um, which vary somewhere between 39% and over 75%. So a lot of women who are nursing children who become pregnant will kick their children off the breast. More than 66% of mothers will have a drop in milk supply during pregnancy. And I think another super interesting factoid is that breast milk does change to that higher protein, lower fat, uh, quality toward the end of pregnancy, and it basically reverts to colostrum, which I find interesting because I see that clinically when a woman has been nursing during pregnancy, and then 
she's nursing her newborn. I don't really see that that newborn is drinking tons of milk, um, that the newborn seems to be taking colostrum the same way that um, a newborn would be if the mother had not been breastfeeding during pregnancy. <clears throat> I think this is an important statement for families who are looking for some evidence to share with their OBs because there are still many women who are told by their obstetricians that it's very bad for them to be nursing um, while they're pregnant. <clears throat> I think another thing about this review is that discusses the importance of monitoring mothers for their nutrition during the pregnancy. So if women are taking inadequate calories and are gaining sufficient weight, hopefully they won't have as much impact on the birth weight of the infant as if they were not eating well. So we really need to pay attention to the fact that they are nursing during pregnancy and make sure that they're um, taking in adequate calories and getting adequate nu nutritional advice. The next article I want to mention is that uh, the is the American College of OBGYN Committee Opinion on Marijuana Use During Pregnancy and Lactation, which was published in October of 2017. True or false, pregnant women found to be using marijuana during pregnancy ought to be reported to authorities because in the United States, use during pregnancy is criminal, often resulting in civil penalties. That's false. There is insufficient data on the effects of marijuana use during breastfeeding. True or false? True. So what ACOG says is that uh, the self-reported use of marijuana is about 2 to 5% during pregnancy. Um, but if you actually drill down to young, urban, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged women, about 15 to 38% are using marijuana. They mentioned that THC does cross the placenta, producing about 10% of maternal levels, and um, fetal concentrations will increase over time. There's no evidence that marijuana causes birth defects, and there's just insufficient data on the effect of marijuana use during lactation. So their recommendation is to um, ask all women before pregnancy and in early pregnancy if they use tobacco, alcohol, and drugs and also include marijuana in that, um, as well as other medications that are used for non-medicinal reasons, such as OxyContin. Um, <clears throat> women reporting marijuana use should be counseled about concerns regarding potential adverse health consequences of continued use during pregnancy, and that women who are pregnant or contemplating pregnancy should be encouraged to discontinue marijuana use. Um, pregnant women or women contemplating pregnancy should be encouraged to discontinue marijuana for medicinal purposes in favor of looking at alternative therapy for which there are better pregnancy-specific safety data. So if a woman has a chronic pain syndrome, to encourage her to not use marijuana during her pregnancy to control that pain syndrome, but use something else that would be uh, evidence-based uh, in terms of safety. And that there are just basically insufficient data to evaluate the effects of marijuana use on infants during lactation and breastfeeding. And in the absence of such data, marijuana use is discouraged. Another article that I thought was really interesting, a great review, is entitled Human Milk and Allergic Diseases, an Unsolved Puzzle. And this was uh, published in the journal called Nutrients in 2017 in August. True or false? 
Breastfeeding appears to protect against asthma by reducing the risk of respiratory infections rather than reducing the risk of allergy. That's true. And exclusive breastfeeding for three to four months is associated with less eczema for children under two. And that's also true. So they have a pretty cool um, figure in their paper that I encourage you to look at if you're interested about this really complex relationship that occurs between environmental factors, maternal diet during pregnancy and lactation, human milk composition, and how those interactions, how those factors in those three groups impact the development of asthma, eczema, and food allergies in infants. So the factors that seem to play a role in allergy related to maternal diet include um, fish intake, fresh fruits, vitamin intake, and probiotics. So depending on how mom does with those things, those all impact allergy expression in infants. In terms of environmental factors, um, factors that seem to be most important include the residence, where they live, whether or not they have pets, whether or not there's early life infections for the child. So if the child has more infections, that's actually better for them. Um, the exposure to unpasteurized milk, um, ultraviolet light, and antibiotic use early on. And then some of the immune factors in human milk play a role in allergy expression as well. And those include the um, human milk oligosaccharides, um, the vitamin levels in the breast milk, other various immune factors in the breast milk, and the microbiome of the breast milk. In addition, early food introduction um, can change allergy expression, as we talked about in one of the other articles, and that the infant gut microbiome diversity has an impact on allergies as well. So it's really complex. So we know that breastfeeding has an impact on allergy expression. It's just really complicated. And um, I think this helps to clear up some of these articles that come through where um, the researchers will um, conclude, oh, breastfeeding doesn't prevent asthma, or breastfeeding does help to prevent asthma, or breastfeeding um, is impacts eczema, and sometimes it doesn't. So I think understanding these complex relationships helps one be able to counsel families about how breastfeeding can alter or not alter eczema, depending on what else is going on. So some of the key points, um, again, in this article are number one, number one, that breastfeeding's role in asthma and allergies are really hard to tease out, um, given many confounders, such as a socioeconomic status, the family history of allergy, early exposure to pets, um, etc. And that eczema, that there's less eczema in a breastfeeding child if the child's breastfed exclusively for three to four months at least, but that effect actually goes away after two. And um, this article actually believes that there's no true association between breastfeeding and food allergies, that that's a whole, those, those are basically unrelated. In addition, they state that breastfeeding is, is likely to reduce asthma by simply reducing the severity of respiratory infections. And that breastfeeding increases thymic size in a dose-dependent manner and because the thymus size is related to T-cell immunity, that's how breastfeeding can impact one's immunity for a long period of time. Um, there are variations in breast milk immune composition, 
which can also explain some of the conflicting studies of rules of breastfeeding and allergies. So for example, fish oil and probiotics are known to change various immunomodulating agents in breast milk, and that asthma and allergy symptoms in breastfed infants are sometimes found to correlate with levels of various immunomodulating factors. All right, so in conclusion, we can say that there are many questions that come up from this research. And I'm not going to summarize everything I stated, but to think about some of the questions that we don't have answers to. So number one, is it safe to refrigerate used pump parts for the next time? Because that's something that a lot of women do and it's not addressed by the CDC. And what about the percent of premature infants who are receiving unpasteurized donor milk without the NICU even knowing? So that would be an interesting thing to to investigate. And do children increase their cognition development when they eat fish, meaning once they're born, once they're like three, four, and five, is eating fish still important for cognition throughout the course of childhood and even into adulthood? Um, does peanut intake by a breastfeeding mother count as early introduction um, to prevent peanut allergy that we really don't know? Although the last article I reviewed indicated that it may not. And that, and also what percent of infants are still swaddled after six months of age? Because I think it's actually fairly common. So lots of other questions too. And um, so I hope this was helpful for what happened last year and uh, check this out for the end of 2018. And in addition, um, if you want to see this on YouTube to see all of my slides and the references, come take a look at the Milk Mob YouTube channel. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.